Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Tonight's show is going to be about recovery and relationships, and we have a number, a couple of guests uh, that will be on the show this evening, as well as um, some of our own perspectives on this rather complex issue. There are certainly many different points of views and scenarios that can affect people in not just their early recovery, but in their sobriety in general. And we're going to hear from some perspectives of two people who are both in recovery together, somebody, a situation where one person got sober and how the, their relationship evolved and changed and some of the challenges and also some of the gifts that evolved from that, or what it's like when you get sober and your partner is still drinking, whether it's alcoholically or not, and how ways to be able to handle that situation. And, you know, success stories and cautionary tales and things that have worked and, and have not worked. As always, this is not a show where we give lots of tips and advice. This is a show where we share stories 
and our own experience in strength and hope. And so if there's something that is helpful to you, that's wonderful. We're pleased. But we really are just here to be able to create a community where we can identify with each other and all learn from each other's experiences. So we hope that that's what you're able to take away from today's show. And as always, I have my co-hosts, Amanda and Lisa, on the line with me. Hey, Ellie. Hi, guys. Hey. And I think what we'll do is I'll probably start and just very briefly give a little bit of my perspective on how it is that my relationship evolved and continues to evolve, both in my drinking and in my recovery, and particularly that related to my early recovery. I think of early recovery really as anywhere from a day to five years. I mean, <laughs> I have days where I still feel like I'm in very early recovery, but... My own personal situation is that my husband has always been a completely normal drinker. He's somebody who can take it or leave it, which was always very baffling to me. But, you know, we met when we were very young in our 20s, and we did a lot of drinking together on softball teams and out after work. We worked together for a while, and then we got married in our early 30s, and he kind of grew up and went to grad school and did all sorts of mature adult kind of things, whereas I was really pretty much interested in continuing to drink. And I noticed that our, you know, that my desire to drink definitely was beginning to eclipse his. And so as part of our marriage, you know, I started thinking drinking and hiding how much I was drinking because I felt that he would judge me. And I was able to keep that up for a staggering number of years, really, when I look back on it. But towards the end, as it inevitably happened, it became very apparent that my drinking was a problem. And so he was instrumental in not enabling me and getting me help and getting me to the right kind of recovery resources that I needed. In my case, it was a number of, of detoxes and rehabs, eventually a 30-day program. And so when I came out of that 30-day program and came back to my life, he asked me all the things that he could do to be supportive of me, including not having alcohol in the house, if that was what was helpful to me. And, you know, I told him that I wanted to take a hiatus from doing things like going out to dinner or going to dinner parties for a while because, I, quite frankly, I just didn't know whether or not I'd be able to handle them or not. Um, so all, not all, he was extremely supportive of kind of the logistics around how to live with somebody who's sober or getting sober or newly sober. And I felt very grateful and lucky that he was at least open to hearing how it is that he can help. I should point out that I had what I consider a pretty low bottom and, you know, alcohol nearly killed me. I was physically addicted to alcohol at the end. And so I was not in a situation where people in my life were saying, oh, you know, you weren't that bad. Don't worry about it. We, we will talk about that later in the show. In my situation, it was very clear and everybody was heaving a giant sigh of relief that I was getting sober. And I think what surprised both of us in our, at this point in time, our kids were five and two, was that I think we both thought that I would get sober and everything would just be fixed, that all of the little problems and situations that all marriages have would sort of magically get better. You know, Ellie doesn't fold the laundry enough because she's an alcoholic, or Ellie is late for things because she's an alcoholic, or, you know, she's not the greatest housekeeper because she's an alcoholic. It turns out I'm, I don't like laundry and I don't like cleaning the house and I'm chronically late just because that's how I am. It didn't really have anything to do. It's certainly those things were exacerbated by my drinking. But, you know, six, seven, eight months into my recovery, I began to notice that things were getting really difficult because we were both engaging in kind of behavior patterns that we had been doing for years. At this point, we've been married, I think, nine years or eight years. And 
you know, he was sort of used to having the upper hand because I felt guilty all the time when I was drinking. And I was kind of used to, when he said jump, I'd say how high because I felt guilty all the time. And as I began to grow in recovery, it was a huge adjustment for both of us. And, you know, the little things that we used to fight about before my drinking got bad were still there. And if, if anything, they were worse because I had both lost my anesthesia. I couldn't drink around these issues anymore to avoid them. And I was learning to get a backbone and I was learning that I needed to have self-care and I needed to be out in the evenings to take care of myself, to go to 12-step meetings or to go to exercise or something. And he just wasn't used to any of this. And it became really difficult for him, not because he wished he could drink, but because he kind of was used to this doormat version of me that no longer existed. And I got to about 14 months sober and things were really not going very well. And I, we had a kind of a fight, I would say. It was right after Christmas. And that would have been about, yeah, about a year, year and two months after I got sober. And I just sort of said, you know, I don't agree with your opinion of me anymore. I'm changing and I'm evolving and I'm growing and I need you to try to help grow with me just to understand how it is that I am different now. And we, um, I'm simplifying it for the sake of time, but we ended up going to counseling and it was the best thing that ever happened. It was extremely painful, but we went together and we were able to sort through our issues with a third party who was very sympathetic to both what it's like when one spouse gets sober and also to all issues that marriages face. And little by little by little, we began to learn how to communicate with each other in ways that we never had to know before. Because I met him when I was 24 and he was 26. And I, you know, I never knew what the sober me was like. And he never knew what the sober me was like. And so we were really relearning everything and meeting each other again for the first time. You know, he had to work through some resentments with, you put our family through all of this, and now you need to be out three nights a week just to take care of yourself. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that needed to be worked through, and we're still working on it. It's not um, a magic solution. But I think that the whole fairy tale of if I could just get sober or if she could just get sober or if he could just get sober and everything will get better is an easy one to fall into, and it definitely did not turn out to be true because all that, stuff that we were avoiding by my drinking being the biggest problem that we had in our marriage and then I was avoiding just by, you know, going around it all. When I sobered up and things started to clear up, all that stuff was still there and we needed to sort through it using skills that we had to learn together because we never had them before. And it was, I would say, it was painful, but as I've learned over the years that all painful things, at least so far for me, have led to some incredible gifts. And, you know, we've both discovered things within ourselves and within each other that I don't think we would have known if we hadn't gone on this journey together. But it had to, it had to hurt a lot before it started to feel better. So for anyone listening who might be in a similar situation, all that hard work is definitely worth it. It's uh, far easier just to kind of give up and say, you know, forget it. It's not worth it. You're never going to understand. It's it's worth pursuing and certainly getting third-party help or outside help if that's necessary. So that's my story in a nutshell. And I think the next person that we wanted to talk about, have talked tonight was, is, what not was, is Amanda, who was going to share a little bit about her 
um, experience with the relationships and recovery. Hi. Yeah, sure. So for me, I actually met my boyfriend in recovery. And so we're, we're both sober and have been for a few years. And it's, it's been, you know, it's, I guess just like any relationship, it has its ups and up and downs and its challenges. But you know, it's it's been a very healthy relationship, and because we're both in recovery, I think one of the challenges that we're both growing and changing all the time. And one of the number one things for us is that, or is that we each have our own program, our own recovery. And that we try not to pass judgment or try to tell the other person what they should be doing. That's kind of left to the people, other people in our lives that help us. We certainly do talk about things in different situations, but I think that's, that's one important thing is I do my own thing. We certainly go to different recovery meetings together, but we do things separately as well. And it's just important because actually one of the biggest <coughs> concerns that people have, especially earlier in sobriety, is what if the other relapses? What happens? And I think one of the key things that's important to me or to us, and we actually, you know, with this topic coming up, this topic coming up, we talked about some of these things. Is, you know, what do you do if if the other person were to relapse? I mean, that's a really scary thing with two people in recovery. And and you know, it's kind of funny. The conclusion that we came to is we don't really know yet. And. I don't think either one of us, well, we did talk, I know, that neither one of us are really comfortable at this point in our lives with being with a drinker. And it wasn't even so much a drinker. Like, I asked the question, what if I was a normal drinker when we met and you got sober and I didn't, would you still feel comfortable being with me? And his response was, well, if you were a normal drinker, that would be fine. But it's a whole different ball game when someone has an issue, they've accepted that they have an issue, and to see them go against what they've committed to, that would be a very difficult thing to deal with. So that's something that we've had to have conversations about, and what do you do if something like that happens? And we kind of have an agreement on people that we could call, people that we wouldn't call, just because, of course, the first thing you want to do is try to fix things together, but the number one priority that we discussed is we have to protect our own sobriety first. And that sounds like a really, maybe it sounds like a cold-hearted thing, but it's actually a very, it's a very loving thing to have that agreement amongst, between us because it's necessary. It's just, that's just life. It's just real for us. And of course, I'm sure everyone has their own feeling about that, but that's how we feel about it. And, I mean, those are just the basic things. We have our ups and downs because we are in a similar program. We try to really respect each other's space. And there's times that I understand that he may need to do something that makes him feel good, practicing self-care and, and vice versa. And so it, it can be very healthy. We have some of the typical character defects or isms that go along with alcoholism. And sometimes I just want to say, well, I want you to pay attention to me. And I just have to respect that he may be in, my, in a certain state of mind and needs to do his thing or, and again, vice versa. So I guess it's being open about 
how we are feeling. And <laughs> just like any other relationship, sometimes that's easier than at other times. It's been going very well. We've been together a couple of years. And we continue to grow when things get better. We've also really just taken things easy, taken things slow. Respect that we're both in a uh, point in our lives where things are changing and evolving for us constantly. It's been wonderful. I'm very happy. And it, I know there's different challenges that people have, but this has been uh, very, it's been very healthy. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Did you guys get any feedback from people saying it's a bad idea to get in a relationship with another sober person? Or, I mean, was there any kind of... I hear oh, definitely. Definitely. Different pieces of advice along those lines. But I also yeah. think that getting a relationship with this other person can be a great thing. But what, what were the sorts of things people were warning you against? Don't do it too soon. That's definitely one that I, I think in early recovery, you probably want to avoid relationships because there's, they, they talk, it's, it sounds like, well, that's kind of awful. You need, you need to be loved. But in, in early in early sobriety, it's very important that you learn to love yourself first. And that's something I had never done before and something that I needed to do. And so I guess that was, that's what I was trying to say by we took things slow. We were certainly together, but the, we also focused, we were still focusing on ourselves. And it's kind of challenging to be selfish because you need to be a little bit selfish in early sobriety and being unselfish in a relationship. But, yeah, there were definitely warnings that this is risky, certainly down the road. I know many people who are both in recovery, and, you know, often they were, they were drinking buddies, and then they both got sober. I also know people who were drinking buddies and both got sober, and then the other one relapsed, and then they've gotten divorced, and we even had situations where they got divorced, and then one of the, the one that had relapsed ended up dying. I mean, there's... There's all kinds of risks, but those are the same risks that happen with normies or people who don't drink. But it's certainly it's something to be aware of, and that's why it's important to have discussions on what do you do and, and respect the fact. And I, I think the one, one thing that we absolutely agree on is that our sobriety comes first. Okay. And that sounds, that sounds like, oh, my, and I'm sure that would horrify some people to think that you could say that, but it's, imp- it's important because to us, we understand, or, well, to me, I understand that this is a life and death situation. I mean, sobriety is no joke. <laughs> So well, and not- I, doesn't it also underscore the point that you, when you talk about being able to have, you know, you could have some commonalities in your sober network, but also have a separate sober network for each of you because, God forbid, if somebody relapses, you, you want to be 
or if you break up or something else like that happens, you don't want to lose your whole sober network along with your relationship, you know? That's, That's right, and I, yeah. and I have yeah. seen that happen with people, too, and it's really disastrous, and I think it, it is very important. Like, I mean, number one, I have a woman's meeting that I can go to and that I can share if I'm having problems in, in my relationship, and I can talk about things that may be bothering me or ask for advice. I actually tend not to talk about my relationship in that meeting as much as I would, you know, call a friend. But having a separate network and kind of agreeing that that's the other thing, too. I've seen people handle this in a good way or a bad way. I've seen people in relationships that are both in recovery, and they all they go to all the same meetings, and then they break up. And I've seen one, one or two things happen. One, both of them stop going to meetings, and that's really bad. Or they'll go to meetings and they just respect each other's privacy. And they, they just don't engage and they don't drag other people into the, whatever they're going through in their relationship. And so that's kind of an unspoken agreement that we have. I guess that's something we should probably talk about. But I think we just respect each other's sobriety and we just, it's just something that is important to both of us. And we know that we wouldn't interfere in the other sobriety. And I think if it came down to that, we would have a discussion and we may decide that, okay, we can't be in the same meeting together. So we pick meetings. You get this one, I get that one. Or as far as friends, my feeling on friendships in general in the meeting is there's often people that have disagreements or arguments and I don't take sides. And so when, if, if, me and my boyfriend were to break up, I would want people to do the same. I wouldn't want them to take sides. I, I wouldn't be angry with my, you know, my closest friend for talking to my boyfriend if we broke up because they're friends. That's, and that's something that it's, we're all there for a common reason, which is to not drink. And for me, there's a certain level of respect there that needs to be come first above anything else. Yep. Yep, right. Well, nice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. All right, Lisa, you had something okay. that you wanted to share, too? I do. I'm going to jump in and share something that a very dear friend of mine in recovery shared. She asked me to read this tonight, so I'm going to read it for her on her behalf. Um, it's about her experience with her husband who is still drinking, and she is in recovery. Okay. My husband and I met in a bar over 27 years ago. We were drinking buddies. We had a lot of fun drinking and partying together. Alcohol was definitely part of our lives, and most most of the people we knew drank like we did. It was not a big deal. We felt normal. There was no obsession. I rarely thought about alcohol. We were content early on in the marriage, drinking just on the weekends. It was easy for me to give up alcohol during my three pregnancies. Over time, our drinking increased. A few years after our, child, our last child was born, I noticed that we had become daily drinkers. We were drinking a bottle of wine together every night at dinner. That amount increased. We began to party a lot harder with our friends we got, when we got together. Sometimes we would spend all day drinking or go out to parties that lasted until 3 a.m. We felt young and cool. Eventually, my little private happy hour started earlier in the day. I began to hide a lot of my drinking, and eventually my alcoholism progressed to the point that was very scary for me, so I quit. I have been sober for almost two years. Before I quit, my husband had started to complain about my drinking. 
He said it was a problem. He would boast that he knew how to drink and that I was just one of those people who didn't know how to drink. I quit not because of what he said, but because my alcoholism was progressing and I knew eventually it would kill me. I was slowly erasing myself. I quit because alcohol took me to places that terrified me. When I quit drinking, my husband never offered to remove the alcohol from our home, and I did not ask him to get rid of it. He was a daily drinker, and it stayed that way. We no longer had huge parties, but friends did come over on occasion and drink. I did not tell anyone that I was an alcoholic. I told everyone I had quit because alcohol longer, no longer agreed with me, that it gave me insomnia or anything else. At the time, I did not feel that I had a right to tell my husband to get rid of the alcohol or take it out of the house. Asking him to remove alcohol would mean that I was imperfect and had a problem and that I was too weak to have booze in our home. The belief in both of our minds was that I should just be strong and be able to quit without asking him to change anything. I was, with, I was, with, I was the one with the problem. He wasn't. So I quit, and life went on as usual. I began to go to recovery meetings. At first, I did not tell him that I was going to meetings. I was ashamed to tell him that I had a problem and needed help. Eventually, I shared with him that I was going to meetings. I was very much a do-it-yourself type of person and dealt with my recovery in the same way. Being vulnerable and admitting that I had a problem, in my mind, meant that I would seem flawed, or worse yet, that it meant that I am flawed and everyone would see it. I put a lot of energy into my exterior so that no one would see my interior. I have learned in recovery that being vulnerable and honest is just what I need to do in order to stay, in order to heal and to stay sober. I am imperfect and I am worthy of love and it's okay for me to ask him for help. When I first got sober, I was so freaked out and scared by my own behavior that I did not worry about my husband's drinking. But now that I have been sober for over 20 months, my husband's drinking has become more glaring and annoying. He is a daily drinker, and on occasion, he is a heavy drinker. In my mind, his drinking became the white elephant in the room. I felt like he had to take a good, honest look at his own drinking. I cannot label him an alcoholic. Only he can decide that. As I grow stronger in recovery, our marriage has been affected. During 20 years of marriage where I masked my feelings with alcohol, it is very painful sometimes to actually feel my feelings. There are many codependent behaviors that we are now dealing with. It has not been easy. I bring up his drinking at recovery meetings, and basically what I am told to do is realize that I am powerless over all alcohol, mine and his. The truth is that when I see him drink, I feel angry that I cannot. I know I should not be counting his drinks, but I do. I feel jealous of his glass of wine, and it reminds me that I have this disease. I have also felt envious of others who are either married to spouses who stop drinking for them or others whose partners decide to join them in sobriety. But I know that jealousy can only hurt me and blocks me from feeling true joy. It is not easy for me when my husband has a drink or two in the evening. So now, instead of focusing on what I can't have or don't have, I try to apply the techniques of Buddhism and recovery to the situation. I try to feel compassion for myself and for him. I try to be grateful. And in the words of a very good friend of mine, I try to keep my eyes on my own paper. The reality is that I cannot change his drinking. The only thing I can change is how I react to his drinking. 
I've started to go to a 12-step support group to help deal with his drinking. I have been told that relationships change after someone gets sober. I have heard that things sometimes get harder before they get better. I really try to just take my recovery one day at a time. I believe that these trials are difficult, but if I can get through them and I do the work, fill my ceilings, stay honest, then on the other side there will be freedom for me. We have recently started marriage counseling. Now that we have removed the alcohol, we are trying to reconnect our friendship and enjoy new activities together. The most important thing I've learned in this whole process is to be able to stand up for myself, that I am worth it. I can let him know that things are not okay with me. I would love it if we could have removed all of the alcohol from the house, but that was not something I asked for, and it is not something he offered to do. So I have gotten sober with alcohol in my home. What I would like to share today to anyone who is listening is that it is absolutely possible to get sober with someone who is still drinking in your home. Not only is it possible, it is imperative. If you are anything like I am, then alcohol will kill you. Alcoholism is a progressive and fatal disease. If you have a fatal disease, you have to look at it very seriously and honestly. It is important that you begin to practice radical self-care. I spent a lot of time and energy trying to be a perfect wife and a perfect mother. This meant that I was neglecting myself. Today, my recovery is really about taking care of me. Wow, that's really an awesome share. Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Jenna, are you there? Yes. Hi, Allie. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you so much for um, having me on the show. I'm so honored. Oh, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Well, I first got the idea, you know, just to get sober by listening to the bubble hour. So this is just really full circle for me. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. And sometimes I would listen to this show sober, and sometimes I would have a glass of wine, you know, in my hand, thinking, you know, this can never be me. Yeah, (laughs) here you are. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and I could really relate to the last person's share, Mm -hmm. too, you know, Mm -hmm. since my husband is an alcoholic, but I'll just introduce myself. Um, my name is Jenna, and I am an alcoholic, and I've been sober now um, for almost, for a little bit over two and a half months. Good like for you. Six 
days awesome. today. Thank you. It's the longest I've been sober in over 22 years. So. Wonderful. And I live in, yes, it feels great. I'm really excited. And I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm 40 years old, and I'm also married, and I don't have any children. I've been trying for a few years, but I got um, married later in life when I was, like, 37. But I do have a cute dog that I adopted from the Humane Society a couple what months ago. What kind of dog? Is it like, a, a, a mutt or a purebred, or what kind of dog um, do you have? Oh, she's half border collie, half pointer. Oh, uh-huh. cute. Oh, cute. <laughs> yeah, so I've been loving that. And I've also been a preschool teacher for over 20 years, and some of my hobbies that I have are I love to travel, hike, ride my bike, read, cook, bake, and I also have been in a sketch comedy troupe for over five years. That's how I met my husband. Oh, cool. So cool. I never did yeah. Good for you. Oh, my God. And my situation with drinking is a lot different. Like, I'm finally coming out of the closet and opening up, and I've told several people that I'm an alcoholic. But my reaction, um, you know, I was hoping they'd be excited and you know, say like, oh, you're an alcoholic, but mine, mine has just been the opposite of yours, Ellie, where people are telling me there's no way you're an alcoholic. <laughs> so, That's um, tricky. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah, it was tricky. When I stopped drinking, it wasn't apparent on the outside, you know, that I was an alcoholic. I'd never had a DUI, never been to jail. And at the time when I was drinking the most, I had two jobs, a part-time and a full-time job. And I still had the house you know, fr- never lost any friends. I never missed a day of work due to drinking. But even though I hadn't lost anything on the outside, there was a big struggle going on with me internally. It just didn't feel right. I've always known for, like, over 20 years that I was an alcoholic, but I I knew, like, internally that I was still in denial. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of lied to myself. And when I first started drinking in college, I knew something was different about my drinking because right from the beginning, when I was like 19, I was blacking out, which that's over, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. However, I went to a party school, so my drinking was just perceived as being pretty normal. And then when I was in my early 20s and 30s, I was in the beginning stages of alcoholism. So I guess it should have been a concern to me, but it really wasn't. And I, just even in my early 20s, I had many close calls and very frightening, dangerous situations where I could have died, you know, and it was during a blackout. I would black out, you know, from anywhere from five to 10 hours, which is really extreme. And, you know, you'd think I would have stopped then, but the craving for alcohol, you know, always won in the end, Mm -hmm. despite the circumstances. And my alcoholism really started to burn progressed around three and a half years ago when I married another alcoholic. And I can see just by living with my husband and experiencing it firsthand that, you know, I've read all kinds of books on alcoholism and how it progresses for women, but I can just say it really progressed for me much faster than him. I mean, his drinking has stayed the same through the whole time we've been married, and mine has gotten worse. And when I first started dating my husband, we became drinking buddies, and drinking with him was a lot of fun. And at the time, back then, I was only drinking on the weekends, and my drinking was always extremely social. Like, we, I would just drink at a party. And then, God, 
fast forward three or four years, and then I was drinking more, but it still wasn't a lot, probably three, four times a week. But then I started to have more frequent blackouts. And the blackouts could happen maybe once a month, every few months, but it was just a real concern because I wouldn't, like, black out for an hour. It would be, like, five hours at a time. Mm. And um, then I really, I started to get concerned about the blackouts, and then um, I tried to moderate, which became almost a full-time job in itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, yeah, so I was, like, I would do wine, and then I would, you know, do red wine, and switch to white wine, and then switch over right. to liquor, and then switch over to beer. I mean, it was just really exhausting. And then I was constantly keeping track on my calendar, which is really weird. For days, I wasn't drinking. Mm-hmm. So, like, I knew, like, I could have been drinking a lot, a lot more of work. frequently. Yeah. Yes, but I was just, I was trying to, like, really control it, which I couldn't. And so I, then I realized I'd progressed to the middle stages of alcoholism because I was, I was really enjoying drinking alone, mm-hmm. which seems really strange to me, but I was getting, pretty common. I knew I was in the middle. What did you say? I said it's pretty common, the enjoying drinking yeah. alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, at the time I thought it was strange, so. but I knew I was in the middle stages because I was drinking alone, and my hangovers started to get really bad, even when I didn't even drink that much, and then what really got me was, even though I wasn't, like, physically addicted to alcohol, the psychological craving was just unbelievable. I mean, just the, when I first quit in December and I went 13 days, I just had a hard time going longer than a few days without a drink, but I couldn't believe just like that craving, just the mental craving. So I knew I was an alcoholic then. And then what really bothered me too was I was like constantly like getting bruises all over my body and mm-hmm. just like getting some bad falls, not very often, but just enough where it was a concern. And then when I would get the blackouts, there was a lot of shame, guilt, and remorse after I woke up. I mean, I was one of those people that could stop at three glasses of wine and be done and switch over to ice water. But it was just like that blackout that might happen once in a while was just too much where I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't take living that way. But I didn't get, it took me a long time before I actually got any help. I mean, luckily I listened to the bubble hour and challenge was in the beginning I told him I was getting sober and he was he's a big drinker so he would sit in the living room with me drinking um, a glass of red wine out of a pint-sized glass and I could smell it when he would pop the wine bottles and I asked him you know to please finally we had to do a lot of compromising you know I asked him to please not drink around me so then he started drinking downstairs as soon as he was drinking, I would head to recovery meetings, and I would stay out for a few hours. And other sober people would invite me to, you know, do fun things like a bonfire or whatnot. But I really, I mean, it was sad, but I, in the beginning, I literally had to run out of the house when he was yeah. drinking. Because I, mm. like what Amanda said about protecting her sobriety and her sobriety coming first, I had to, like, go to, like, extreme measures to not drink. But, I mean, now that I've been sober a little longer, it's gotten a lot easier. 
Hey friends, that's the end of this shortened version of this conversation. It does extend uh, closer to an hour and a half, which you can hear over on Patreon. Uh, Patreon members have access to our entire backlist full-length episodes ad-free. So if that interests you, you'll find a link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash the bubble hour and have a look at how to access that. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all the best until next time. Take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.